Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Scrum, WGBH News' political podcast. I'm Statehouse reporter Mike Dean, pitch-hitting this episode for Adam Riley and Peter Kadzis. Today we're looking at how Beacon Hill really works. How a bill becomes a law in Massachusetts is not nearly as straightforward as Schoolhouse Rock would have you believe. Earlier this month, a blistering blog post from former environmental lobbyist Phil Sago went viral in the chummy world of state politics. In fact, the essay isn't very chummy at all, laying out just where the power truly resides in the legislature and how influential the Speaker of the House really is in Massachusetts. I'm joined today by Phil Sago, who is uh, a lobbyist, a retired lobbyist, uh, worked in Massachusetts on a number of environmental issues, um, and I'll have him go over his portfolio. He made waves a few weeks ago when a blog post of his went a little viral in the uh, the Massachusetts politics circles here around the state house and really really around the state. It was a um, very candid look at how the Massachusetts House and Senate and really legislature in general operates, how lobbyists operate, how bills really do go from an idea into a law, and all of the different obstacles and uh, wheels to grease and uh, other things that that could get in the way. So, Phil, thank you so much for for being here. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, let's start off with you know your background. You you were a lobbyist for an awfully long time. Well, what do you what do you say you did for a living? Well, I did uh, for 15 years. I was with the Sierra Club, working on a variety of bills. I was concentrating more on bills that had to do with pollution, plastics, particulates, uh, pretty much anything that had to do with um, uh, pollution. And um, I was focusing on things like the bottle bill or plastic bag ban uh, and also a number of the particulates measurements bills. And I was also looking at carcinogens in our our environment. So you, uh, for the Sierra Club, was lobbying your main job or were you the government affairs person at the... No, there were a couple of people that worked uh, on government affairs, worked uh, in the state house. Uh, the exec director, excuse me, the director of the local chapter, James McCaffrey, myself, and a couple of other people who specialized in other bills uh, worked on those bills. I spent a lot of time here mostly because I loved working in the building. I enjoyed working with our elected officials, and I enjoyed the opportunity to affect, uh, affect the environment, affect it positively. Let's get into the meat of what that blog post said. Um, you wrote it originally, I think, in 2015. Well, I retired three years ago. Yeah. Yes, and I, wrote, I started writing it immediately after I retired. Um, and it was more of a series of vignettes, things that happened to me that I thought were either funny or uh, uh, just you know, slapping your forehead and thinking, oh, God, I can't believe I just saw that. Um, and as time went on, I had tweaked it a little bit and put it aside. Well, let's get to you know what this actually says because it is quite uh, you know it's out there it, it is it is fresh in its portrayal of how things really do get done here and I think what I think most people would take away from what you wrote is the nearly complete control the Speaker of the House has over legislation moving through the building um, far more than I think anyone would even giving a cursory read of our Constitution or a cursory read of of the news would realize that the Speaker uh, really any Speaker not necessarily just this one, um, but any Speaker of the House of Massachusetts, how uh, extraordinarily powerful a figure they are. Um, Is that what you were trying to get across in that this is, in a lot of ways, a one-man show? 
Yes, it is a one-man show. I'm just going to go back to the genesis. How did sure. this turn into being from a series of humorous vignettes to becoming a, a, a rather uh, a concerted hit on the lack of democracy in the statehouse? And uh, a, a few days after the um, end of the session, the session ended on July 31st, so uh, maybe the 3rd or the 4th or the 5th of August, a reporter for the Boston Globe mentioned in his article summing up uh, the accomplishments or the failure of many accomplishments uh, to move through the House. Um, he mentioned that they ran out of time, and I flipped out. There is no such thing as running out of time. They have uh, 19 or 20 months to review all the pending legislation, categorize it in what needs to be done for public safety or public health, and what can be held off to the very last minute. And that's key. Uh, if you were a state representative and you introduced a bill, the speaker, if he holds that bill to the very last minute, he is holding something over your head. If you want that bill passed, you will stay with me until the 11th hour. If he passes it at the beginning of the session, he has no hold over you. So the way that the speaker has power over the various legislators, the 159 other legislators, is he controls the agenda. He controls it from the minute he is elected speaker and from the minute the bills are filed until that very last day of the session. And this year, it seems now in the informal sessions, the smaller uh, post-session hearings that are going on. You have an anecdote in there about talking to another reporter. Um, it's kind of the, the lead of your blog post. Maybe you could kind of retell that story that, that really does give a, a look at how this building runs. That's the one that sticks with me. I uh, had been um, holding court, meaning I talked to the press while hearings are going on. And the hearing on that day was on the bottle bill. The bottle bill was my all-time favorite bill. I spent more time on the bottle bill than every other bill combined. I was taking turns with one of the other organization's directors while she was inside watching the hearings and listening. I was outside talking to press, and then we switched places. Well, it was my turn. I went outside talking to this young reporter. I hadn't met him before, and he was from a, a mid-central western Massachusetts, maybe the Amherst area. I'm not going to say which newspaper it was and who the reporter was. And he is saying, so how's the vote going to go? Well, I was not in a good mood. The hearings were just really depressing me. I had been through this so many times before, and the room was packed, and it was hot, and I was just in a foul mood. So I shot back, what vote? There's no vote. He said, well... When are they going to vote? Tomorrow? I said, no, they're not voting tomorrow. Next week? He said, I said, listen, they're never going to vote on this bill. And he said, but aren't the majority of the committee members in favor of it? It sure seems that way. And I said, please, don't confuse what goes on in this building with democracy. And that's what he printed the next day with my photo. Did that change your relationship as a lobbyist uh, here in the Statehouse? That did not. Luckily, that didn't get around too much. And also it was, people thought it as somewhat lighthearted. Maybe I kind of remember that I was smiling in the photo. I did think uh, that uh, that would be the end of my career and that I would never be able to set foot in the Statehouse again. Well, since I wrote the article, uh, I received quite the uh, welcoming this morning when I walked through the halls and ran into a few people. This time, my words made an impact. 
and I don't think I've ever seen anything posted on social media within political circles where with such a unanimous uh, appraisal of accuracy. I think everyone said he nailed it. A few people had a little bit of nitpicks here and there, um, but as far as the, the thesis and the premise of your piece, you nailed it. This is how the building works. Um, the only criticism I, I really heard was, was offline. No one was really... Um, you know, defenders of the house would kind of reach out offline, but no one was willing to say publicly to defend the way the system works here. Um, was that surprising to you to get such a reaction out of what is essentially, like, like you said, a pretty negative takedown of our democratic institution? I was surprised by the reaction. I was surprised it went viral. I was targeting uh, the newly elected reps, their aides, reporters, particularly that specific reporter for the Boston Globe who mentioned that they ran out of time. And for people in general that were following the political pulse of the State House, uh, just to give them a little clue is there are, you know, something like 11 or 12 or 13 ways a bill can be introduced into this building. And the speaker has found a way to stop every single one of those introductions from falling outside of his uh, ability to control. When you say speaker, do we mean Speaker Robert DeLeo, the current speaker of the House, who is going to reach his 10-year anniversary uh, coming up? Or are we talking about the speaker as a position, as a, as a role? Well, we're talking about both. I mean, I, I was here working in the building. I just started when uh, Tom Finneran was the House speaker. Tom Finneran was a, uh, an iron-fisted uh, House speaker, maybe not as much as uh, Speaker DeLeo. But he was very focused on keeping very tight control on all important bills and all semi-important bills. There are a lot of bills that he really did not care about, and he let either the lieutenants, committee chairs, or I've been told, although I can't really remember exactly a case of this happening, even the rank and file saying, yeah, we really love this bill, we really want it to move forward. Sal DeMacy was a perfect example of a more... Mm, let's say, a more democratic speaker. Again, he really controlled all the bills, all the important bills. But he was well known for trying to find a democratic way to move popular bills through. Speaker DeLeo only moves bills through that he wants. He does depend on his lieutenants to tell him or to influence his decisions. But there is no bill that moves through this building unless it has the blessing of the speaker. And I hope that that is going to change. That is, to me, the least democratic way and condition I've ever seen this building. Is the Senate any different? And why is the Senate a different body compared to the House? Well, the Senate is totally different for a number of reasons. Um, it has traditionally been a, a more progressive body. The way that the building is set up, and probably a lot of listeners, uh, this may be getting into the woods, but the, uh, the way that each of the committees is set up, like the Committee on the Environment or the Committee on Natural Resources or the Committee on uh, Education, etc., all of these committees are joint committees. But there's only 40 senators, and there are 160 reps. So every single committee is made up of a majority of reps. If that happens... If those reps want something to pass or fail the committee process, the reps have by far an overwhelming majority on each of those committees. So the very status of the joint committees enables the speaker to control what goes on. But there are other ways, as I mentioned, there's other ways to bring in bills. You could bring them in through the budget. You could bring them in through amendments. And when they come in through the budget, that is how the Senate is able to pass 
or to push through important legislation. Such as the bottle bill. Such as the bottle bill. The Senate will support it. The Senate will really want it. So the Senate will pass it. And then when it comes time for the two bodies to decide the budget, the Senate can say, we really want these top 10 items that you have failed to pass for the past couple of sessions. And the uh, um, speaker may say, okay, I'll pass those, but I want these priorities to move forward. So that's where you get this sort of bargaining chips or horse trading that goes on. The Senate has occupied for a very long time the position of being the more progressive side of that legislative push. You said you were trying to target journalists, but the, and especially the, the new members of the House. And if people don't know, coming in in January, we're having kind of a, a, quite a collection of new, more progressive members of the House. Um, some beat uh, veteran Democrats during the primary. Um, there was one a House seat, a Republican went uh, blue and a Democrat Jim Lyons was defeated by Tram Nguyen. What message are you trying to send to these new reps uh, when they enter in here and they kind of evaluate their relationship with leadership and the speaker? Well, I've seen a lot of new reps come into the building and had an opportunity to meet with them when they were still in their honeymoon phase. It's all new and they perhaps uh, did not come from a lobbying background or uh, had not worked as a clerk or as an intern for one of the existing reps or senators. So they're coming into this building with fresh, with a fresh attitude. And what I wanted to show them is that uh, this is really how it works. There are ways to move your bills forward. But there are also ways to get caught up in the process of thinking that, oh, we have uh, 50 or 60 co-sponsors on this one particular bit of legislation. Uh, of course it will move forward because with 50 or 60, that's an overwhelming message for leadership. Well, that's uh, yes, yes and no. It's 50 or 60 is definitely going to interest them, but it's not going to have any impact on whether the bill passes or not. Why is this system such a dirty little secret? Why was it? Why did it take a blog post like yours to really blow the the lid off of this? When I'm on the radio every day, you know, trying my best to explain how the system works, uh, without being too dismissive of it. Why? Why do you think your insider take really has had resonance where the media has not? Well, first of all. What I wrote is true. I mean, not that the media doesn't promote the truth. I think that the media has done a pretty good job. There are exceptions. And I think that um, whenever I read a newspaper article or hear something on the radio, uh, for example, that the legislature ran out of time, I realize that that's doing everyone a disservice. When they talk about how bills get stuck in committee, that they get sent for further study, um, that to me is um, very alarming when a reporter says that a certain bill has gone for further study. And, and just to define what happens is that if a bill is introduced and it goes to a committee hearing and the hearing is, you know, all the lobbyists come out and industry comes out and the public comes out and they all talk about it, and there's general agreement that they really want it, but it never gets voted on positively or negatively by the committee. What happens? Well, they can vote yay or nay, or they can also vote to send it to study. And that's sort of a nice way of saying it's like voting no, but not actually having to say no. It's saying we'll get back to you. Um, there's no money for a study. Nobody's assigned to do the study. There is no study. Yeah, this, they simply this, call it that. A study really around Beacon Hill is a death sentence for a piece of legislation Absolutely. for that session. Absolutely. Uh, one thing that I have been trying to, to get across to folks is that the, the members 
select the speaker. He is not the he's not an autocrat who inherited power or anything like that. Every year, every two years, and in a couple weeks, uh, Speaker DeLeo will most likely be reelected Speaker of the House unanimously by the Democratic Caucus. What responsibilities do the rank and file members have? to their constituents, but also to the institution of the House and and to the state as a whole to participate in this system where sometimes it seems like only a handful of representatives are participating in the system. Well, I think, first of all, I didn't write this piece thinking naively that um, I'd wake up the next morning and the House would become a democratic body and that they would elect the most democratically focused individual amongst them. Uh, I realized that uh, my piece is going to move the conversation simply forward one square. And that was all I meant it to be. And that's why I was surprised early on that the uh, piece went uh, viral, that I was not writing it for the general public. I was not writing it to be on, uh, to be in the newspaper or radio or TV. I wrote it simply for a, a relatively narrow group of individuals just trying to move the conversation forward. I know it's done that. I've received so many comments from people uh, that have been very encouraging. But I know in this next session, there will be a new group of legislators. Hopefully those new legislators, when they are told that they must vote a certain way on a bill, otherwise uh, the state project that's uh, slated for their district uh, may not actually be funded. I think that those reps at some point may start pushing back and say that enough is enough. I cannot support the speaker on this particular bill that they, that he is asking for. And we saw that in the last session, or at least I heard of it in the last session. And I think that as we move forward, I think that there will be more room for that. Hopefully the next time that the uh, House chooses a speaker, they'll be focused on somebody who does endeavor, who does promise to set up a more democratic environment. What do you say to uh, you know maybe younger lobbyists, people that do have to navigate this system? It's their job and it's their their goal. You know, I don't know who's carrying the bottle bill these days, but how do you advise them to to swim in these waters? Well, I think understanding the process is the first step. Getting thirty or forty co-sponsors on a bill is a lot better than just having one sponsor and no co-sponsors on a bill. But from the very inception of the bill, it's very important to start looking at what is the strategy to get to the end game, to get to that point on the House floor that you walk into the gallery knowing that your bill is about to pass. To me, the way to start is look at the bill itself. Is this something that is going to be palatable to leadership? The next step, of course, is uh, uh, choosing a sponsor. You don't want to choose a sponsor that uh, detests the speaker or that the speaker detests. Uh, You want to choose a sponsor who has a good relationship with him or in the future with her. And you also want to choose co-sponsors that the speaker will also respect their opinions. After you get all that, you would then be able to follow the bill and follow the hearing, go to the hearing, and try to get as many legislators to speak on your behalf, on the behalf of the bill, in order to move it forward in the committee structure. But it takes a tremendous amount of work to usher a bill through the process, a lot of planning and a lot of understanding of the system. Has it always been this way? You mentioned, you know, the different attitudes of Speaker Finneran and Speaker DeMacy. Uh, Is it getting worse? Has it gotten worse over your career uh, from a Democratic standpoint, a small-D Democratic standpoint? And, And how did we get here? 
Well, how do we get here is a bigger question. The easy question is, has it always been this way? Yes. It's always been that in politics that it doesn't really matter. Well, this is not Mr. Smith goes to Washington. You don't hold up a piece of wonderful legislation and everybody on the, on the floor yells, hear, hear, and stands up and applauds you. That is Hollywood. The reality is that if you want a good piece of legislation to pass, you have to work very hard to get it. And the legislator, the primary sponsor of the piece, has to work very, very hard, constantly, to get that bill through. To me, that's a good thing. You don't want a state legislative body that passes 2,000 or 3,000 bills every, every term. That would drive everyone crazy. There should not be that much legislation coming out of a state body. The bill should be well thought out. They should be properly written. You don't want repercussions of poorly written legislation being signed into law. After a bill is uh, uh, conceived, after it is promoted, how did it get to the process where you needed to spend so much time on the bill? I think that any state legislative body has to push back because there are so many hundreds, thousands, 5,000 or more bills are filed every single session. And they have to be more discerning and make it more difficult for bills to pass. What about the other side of that equation where you have a lobby or a special interest who doesn't want to see new legislation passed, who will lose out from a new regulation going forward, who will lose money from a new environmental bill maybe cutting into their business? I think that there are probably more lobbyists who want to stifle legislation than there are lobbyists trying to pass legislation in a lot of ways. Well, it's easier to stifle legislation. I mean, a good example is uh, when a, um, a powerful business, uh, business person in central Massachusetts uh, wanted to build a, a house on some property that um, unfortunately had a threatened species. So when the um, Department of Environmental Protection said no, because the Endangered Species Act says very clearly you cannot build additional structures on your property, what he decided to do is to destroy the entire state's Endangered Species Act. How did that go? Well, he managed to get the body that was overseeing the Endangered Species Act, he managed to get it defunded. So he moved the conversation fairly far along before environmentalists were able to catch up and stop his destruction of the Endangered Species Act. It continued with no funding, or the act continued with no funding, and the last I heard, he is still trying to gut the Endangered Species Act, the entire act for the entire state, just so he can build his second house. You mentioned a few times here, the uh, a reporter, or just reporters in general, reporters like me, and I often write that they ran out of time at the end of the session. You said that drives you crazy, and I can definitely understand why. Uh, the clock does tick to the end of the session, but as you say, it's because leadership is holding those those chits for their own bargaining purposes. Is the media complicit in this to a certain extent? Is the weakened media over the last 20 years a factor in uh, the consolidation of power and the fact that few realize how things actually operate? I can't say the media is at fault. The fault is here in the building. The reporting of it and the, the fact that there's not a lot of public outcry Yes, I think that you can fairly say that the media has not raised an alarm that the uh, level of democracy on, in the State House has been diminishing over the past years. I think that it's a very difficult challenge to try to tell people exactly how bills move through the process. And uh, before you're done with the halfway point or the one-third point, everybody's just glazing over. It's a lot easier to say, 
we ran out of time. It may not be exactly true, but the long and short of it is that how do you explain to people that the speaker held it to the very last minute in order to keep people voting with him on his more important priorities, and therefore uh, he decided that he had to get jettison it because he didn't really care that much about That is just everybody will look at this thinking, is this reporter uh, crazy? Or I, I don't, I can't understand how this could have happened. It's a lot easier to say they just ran out of time. Are the lawmakers okay with that that narrative that makes them look incompetent? I mean, very often I go on the air and my reports probably do make them look incompetent because I'm continuously saying they ran out of time, they couldn't get this done, they failed to reach compromise. That in a way is accurate, but in another deeper way, as you say, uh, it, it doesn't nearly scratch the surface of the negotiations and the dynamics that are going on. It's a very difficult line for me. I really can't know the answer. Do legislators look incompetent? I think there are legislators here that look incompetent because they are not particularly competent. I think that the vast majority of the legislators that I've worked with in the past are amazing. They are thoughtful. They are in many ways brilliant in being able to get bills either through a process, uh, a process that in many ways is stacked against them, or bills changed, or amendments put on, or things put in the budget, or things in the budget taken out of the budget. They are extremely good at that. But it's not the Mr. Smith goes to Washington. They go to, don't go to a hearing, and when they say, you know, bill number 101, all in favor, aye, that's not where it happens. It happens in private discussions between legislators or between those legislators and the speaker's uh, lieutenants, leadership, and the speaker himself. That leadership team is, of course, all Democrats. The speaker is a Democrat. Um, the supermajorities in both chambers, I think many would argue that things would be better, small d democratically, would be better if there was a more powerful minority party to check the majority party, and to keep that supermajority in line on its toes. It, does that factor into your thinking at all? Uh, if we had something closer to Washington of equal powered parties where power shifts every few years uh, from one to the other instead of this complete one-party domination? Would things be different, or is this just the way any legislature is going to run? Well, let me preface my answer by saying I'm a, a registered independent or unenrolled in Massachusetts, what we call ourselves. So um, I am not wedded to uh, a Democratic majority or Republican majority or any specific breakdown of how many seats each one's have. But I will tell you that every Republican I've ever spoken to said that, quote, if we had more members, this body would be more Democratic because it would force the speaker to explain, to shed more light on what is going on and not everything be done behind closed doors. I have seen other state legislatures um, do things that are just as mm, undemocratic as Massachusetts. They have perfectly balanced Democrat-Republican uh, majority-minority. In Massachusetts, I think that the Republicans do see themselves as, uh, as the loyal opposition. And I think that as time goes on, I think that uh, they will maximize the use of that. One thing that I've been thinking of, is: are we going to see a, not a third party, but a progressive bloc 
that could challenge the speaker. Right now we have a number of um, reps coming in who are more or less allying with Republicans in order to get more roll call votes. The transparency that you're talking about that Republicans have advocated for years and years is something that a lot of these progressive newcomers also find appealing. Uh, We could see the far left and the far right, or the middle right, really kind of teaming up to take on the speaker in a way. I think some people want to see that play out and others anticipate that revolution will be quickly, uh, you know, swept under the rug once the session gets going. I know that the Progressive Caucus has been gaining strength over the past few years. I haven't been in the building for for a few years now, so I'm not exactly sure what their current status is, although I know that they've been growing and they've been growing stronger. I think that that's probably where some insurrection or some burst of democratic action is going to start, that this group will say we cannot support that bill or we must, we will not support that bill unless you also support these three or four bills. As this uh, uh, progressive caucus uh, forms in the coming months, I hope that they do take a more, um, not confrontational, but a more assertive strategy. Well, I think we should leave it there. Uh, Phil Sego, thank you so much for being with us here on The Scrum. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. And that's going to do it for this off-brand knockoff Scrum. Thanks to Adam Riley and Peter Kadzis for letting me take their podcast out for a spin. And thank you for taking the time to listen. You can subscribe to The Scrum at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or whatever podcatcher you prefer. I like Pocket Casts myself. And The Scrum team would also love to hear from you about what you think about the way things really work on Beacon Hill. Adam is at Riley Adam, Peter Kadzis is at Kadzis, and I am at Dean. Our engineer for this episode was John Parker, and indispensable production help came from Gary Mott. I'm Mike Dean. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.